Today we'll be reading Daniel 3, verses 14 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the fire was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of, from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of the fire came come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Sounds like you guys are lit up already. Yeah. We've got a great text here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel chapter 3. We read verses 14 through 30. I'll bring you up to speed with the first 13 verses. This is our Daniel teaching series, Shining in a Dark World. Also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube live right now. Thank you for joining us. Grab your Bibles, follow along. Also grab your sermon notes out. Be Courageous is the title of this weekend's message. And uh, as you well know, courage is indispensable for shining in a dark world. 
In fact, let me just say something about this message. This is my favorite thus far in this series, okay? The Lord spoke to my heart so strongly. He does every week when we study His Word, but in particular this weekend, I needed this one. And maybe you're here this morning and you might need this one. Maybe when we're all said and done at the end of this, you'll go, yeah, I needed that one. It's probably true for all of us, but man, God spoke to me so clearly through this one. So it's a powerful, powerful uh, words from our Lord this morning. So we're talking about courage, and courage overcomes crippling fears. Do you have a few of those that you need to overcome? And it refuses to compromise convictions or give up in difficult circumstances. It says and does the right thing regardless of the cost. That's courage. Here's, I think my favorite here, though, is right here. It trusts God even when you don't understand His ways, rather than to second-guess Him and cower in corners of doubt and fear. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to show us what courage is and how we can be courageous. To be courageous, we need to know three things. It's from this text. The first thing is to understand and to know the pressure of of living in a pluralistic world or the, or the pressure of tolerance. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but that's important because this is what these guys are doing. They're standing up against what is being required of them. And so we're going to talk about that. But another thing we need to know if we're going to be courageous is not just the pressure of tolerance, but the power of true faith. These guys demonstrated. And then we'll talk about the promises of suffering. Yes, the Bible gives us great theology on suffering and what God promises us in our suffering. But before we do that, let me ask you this. Do you have any go-to passages that you have when you're struggling in your life, maybe needing some courage, maybe struggling with fear? I've got a couple of them right here that I'm going to pray. And the first one is 2 Timothy 1.7. Maybe you're familiar with this. God has not given us the spirit of what? A fear, absolutely. We're going, to, we're going to pray that one. I would also like to pray Joshua 1, 9. And this is before the nation of Israel is going into the promised land. Joshua is rallying the troops. And he's basically saying what God said to him. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray those two verses. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. Lord, we love you. We love spending time with you. We love growing in our relationship with you through uh, worship in song and now worship in the study of your word. Speak to our hearts this morning and infuse us with courage unlike we've ever experienced before. Because God, we know you have not given us the spirit of fear. When we committed our life to you, you gave us the Holy Spirit, a spirit of love, power, and self-control. And you have commanded us to be strong and courageous, to not be afraid, and to not be dismayed, Lord, that we would not be afraid or dismayed by anything that happens in our lives, for you are with us wherever we go. May we not just know that as a concept, but may we know the reality of your presence in our lives to face anything, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this. First of all, the pressure of tolerance. Let me bring you up to speed. First 13 verses, King Nebuchadnezzar builds a gold statue that is 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. It's almost in defiance to last weekend, the, the, the dream that he had uh, of this image. And so he's kind of defying that. And the king summons all of his political leaders to attend this dedication. So when the band plays, all those present are to bow down and worship 
the gold statue. Most of us are familiar with the story, and those that don't get thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, it's interesting in the story that some Chaldeans maliciously accused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think there's some envy going on because remember the story last week, um, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is their Babylonian names, are promoted to a high position within uh, this city, within this government. There's a bit of envy here, and so maliciously they accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of not bowing down to the gold image. And in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar commands that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought to him. And look at verse 14 is where we, we began our reading this morning. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image? Uh, in the Hebrew, you could actually translate that, uh, that you do not serve my gods by worshiping the golden image. So you can either way, you can read it, but it's important to kind of see what he's saying here, that, that you're not, you don't serve my gods by serving the golden image that I have set up, and he's almost like he's giving them a second chance. He said, so if you don't do that, you're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. That's verse 15. Now, the golden image represents the values, beliefs, and culture of Babylon. Babylon is a multinational and, and multi-ethnic city. Kind of like good old God bless America. We're, we're multinational, we're, we're multi-ethnic city. We are polytheistic. We have, there's many gods, so to speak, here that are represented through the different beliefs. And uh, it's very pluralistic. So Babylon was very polytheistic, many gods, pluralistic. Uh, everyone's beliefs matter kind of city as we have here in America today. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is, is really what he's saying here is that I'm not asking that you worship the Babylonian gods instead of, your, instead of your God, but that you worship the Babylonian gods along with your gods, is what he's saying here. So in private, you can worship whatever God you want to worship. You can worship your own God, but in public, you must be like everyone else. I think he's trying to bring unity to his country, trying to bring everybody together. together. You must accept everyone's belief as a valid expression of faith in God. So this brings up the issue of tolerance. And it's an issue that we are facing as believers. And here's the old definition of tolerance. It's there on your notes. I may detest what you say, but I will defend to my death your right to say it. Uh, you can disagree with that person and still be judged tolerant if you give the other person the right to speak. That's, that's, that's our old definition of tolerance here in America. We are moving into a different definition of tolerance. Here's the new t definition of tolerance. It is wrong to say that it is wrong to say the other person is wrong. All positions must be celebrated as equally valid or you are intolerant, you are, it's actually moving to the place of saying, you are hateful. It's hateful for you to, to say that. So there was a time in our country when presidents would debate, and then at the end of the day, they would shake each other's hands and they would still be friends because we're still on the same team. They don't do that anymore. 
They don't just debate, but at the end, they demonize one another. It has become extremely vicious in our culture today. And, um, and so, for instance, if you say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, an exclusive truth claim based on what Jesus and the Bible says, that is intolerant. In fact, it's even hateful to other, other uh, religions. I've taken some heat over that. And that's the day and time in which we live. See, the mindset of this new tolerance is a religion is most tolerant and therefore most virtuous that refuses to say that, that other religions are wrong. Now, I don't say that other religions are wrong, but Jesus said that all other religions are wrong because I'm, I'm just quoting Jesus. That's why we say other religions are wrong is because of what our Savior says. Because a lot of times people ask me, so who, who gives you the right to say that? Well, it's not me saying it. It's actually Jesus said that. And I happen to believe that he's the son of God. He died in our place for our sins. He resurrected on the third day. And so I put a lot of weight in what he has to say. And, and it's, it's really what he had to say. In fact, he said, 14.6, one of many places in the Bible where he's very clear, John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's not saying that he's, an, he's a way. He is the way. He is the only way. And, and that's offensive. That's offensive to, to people with this new definition uh, of tolerance. A religion is most tolerant and therefore most virtuous that refuses to say that other religions are wrong. So that view is becoming so dominant and powerful that it is becoming the ultimate good in our culture. It is tolerance at the expense of truth. So here's really, from a biblical perspective, here's your next fill in the blank. Tolerance isn't about not having opposing beliefs, but how your opposing beliefs lead you to treat those who disagree with you. Now, let me remind you that we serve a man who died for his enemies. And so, so that's important for us to understand. So it really comes down to how do you treat those who disagree with you. Now, the church is becoming more and more marginalized in our culture today. If you haven't noticed, uh, but and the environment is very contentious. It's extremely contentious toward the church. And as Christians, we need the courage. So why are we talking about courage? We need the courage to speak up more often and vote and promote our Christian values, but do it with wisdom, gentleness, and respect. First Peter three fifteen. So, so we need to be knowledgeable about what we believe and why we believe, but do that not just with wisdom, but gentleness and respect. Now, now here's a short list of the truths that we should be talking about. I mean, we could just spend the rest of the message just talking about what's, what are our values and what's important. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to run through a, just a short list here of things that we need to have the boldness to talk about with our family and friends and the people in our lives and to stand strong on. But there's a way in which we need to talk about these things. And so here's just a short list of truths that we should be talking about. Jesus is the only way to be saved. That's an important truth. Jesus is the only way to be saved. There are only two genders. Your gender is determined in the womb. Sex is for marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman for life. Life begins at conception. We believe in liberty and equality for all. 
God's biblical standards are his perfect love and infinite wisdom for mankind's flourishing. And God is not a restrictor. Believe me, he is not a restrictor. He is a liberator. He is a liberator. And, and so uh, there's nothing more soul satisfying than his perfect love. There's nothing more life liberating than his infinite wisdom, his directives and how he wants us to live. Now, now I say that, and listen to me, this is important. And this is kind of a lot of the philosophy of desert race for years. We start where people are, not where we want them to be. Therefore, people need to know who Jesus is before being challenged with what he requires. Does that make sense? So, so people need to hear the message of the gospel. They need to hear about our Savior. They're not going to accept what He requires if they don't know Him. No, we're going to still promote what He requires, but man, they need to hear about our, the Savior that has captivated our heart. We need to appeal to them from a heart that's smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. There's little point in describing how to live in light of God's grace if someone doesn't yet know God's grace. So it's important to tell them about Jesus, tell them about his grace, and oh, this is why we follow what his directives say. Because we know no one has ever loved us more. The gospel is about a God who is more forgiving and loving than we could ever dream or imagine. And it has gotten a hold of our heart, and that's why we want to follow him. We would invite you to follow him also. And so uh, when, you, when you study the text, uh, this particular text with, uh, and I believe this is what Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are doing. In fact, uh, Jeremiah 29 gives us the directives of the true prophet of God while they're in exile. By the way, if you're not familiar with the story, people of God are in Babylonian exile. They're living in really dark times, a very dark place, and, and the false prophets were telling the people, don't assimilate. See, that's what the Babylonians are trying to do, is trying to get the people. They, they took the leaders of, of uh, the Jewish people and tried to get them to assimilate into their Babylonian culture. Then they could uh, pass that on to the next generation. And so they would be totally consumed by, by that culture. And so he's saying, don't, uh, don't assimilate into the culture, but separate. That's what the false prophets were saying. The true prophets uh, were actually saying, no, no, uh, don't assimilate, don't separate, but infiltrate and be radically different and at the same time be able to radically identify with the world, be in the world but not of the world, bring transformation to the culture, get involved and proclaim the good news of your Savior and try to get as many people as you can to follow Him and to follow His ways. And, and so that's Jeremiah 29, 4 through 13. You can read that. We talked about it the very first weekend. In Matthew 5, 10 through 17, um, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who persecute for, for righteousness' sake. And then he goes on and says, in spite of that, we are to be salt and light in the world. So he's just saying, hey, guess what? As you are salt and light, you're going to take some hits. And you've got to be okay with it. You've got to have the courage to stand up. He also goes on and says in verse 44 of 5, uh, Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, so you can kind of hear the tone of this. Yeah, stand up. Speak with wisdom. 
but do it with gentleness and respect. From an appeal of someone whose heart that has been captivated by the beauty and the glory of Christ. Just this, this love of God. And, and so, if you're going to be courageous, you need to know the pressure of tolerance. Okay, that, that's an important topic. I wish I could spend more time on that. I can't, because it even gets better. If, if, if you're going to do this, if you're going to take a stand, if you're going to get involved, then you need to know the next two points here. The next one here is the power of true faith. So if I kind of lost you on that first one, wake up. This is important. This is critical. You're not going to be able to shine in a dark world if you don't know these next two. If you don't know these next two. So the power of true faith. Look at verses 16 through, through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king. So he threatened to throw them in the fiery furnace. And so they answered. This is good. This is classic. This is, this is like a really great movie right here. Okay. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I like that. I mean, like, right from the get-go. It's like, we're not intimidated by you in the least bit. I know, we know you're the king, but we serve the king that's above you. Way above you. He's so much bigger than you. We're not even in the least bit intimidated by you. We don't ultimately report to you. We report to the real true king of the universe. That's, that's kind of the idea. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself there a bit. But, uh, but, he just said, but they're all saying, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Verse 17, if this be so, you're going to throw us in the fire first, we don't bow down. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is varsity faith right here, okay? Or whatever you want. This is, this is high level faith. This is what we need more than anything. And I don't think a lot of Christians have this or understand this. And, and so I think we need this more than, if you're going to endure difficult times, suffering, persecution, all the stuff that's headed our way as believers, you need to do and know what these guys know. Here's the first one. So the power of true faith lives for an audience of one. Lives for an audience of one. Oh, oh Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, there's, there's a lot of great cross-references. The best commentary for Scripture is always Scripture. And so Galatians 1.10 Paul lays it out there. I mean, he's standing strong. He's writing to a bunch of churches in this region of, of Galatia. Uh, and, um, and what's fascinating about this, he just, the first chapter, he just lays it out there. He says, hey, if anybody preaches another gospel that is not what I've taught you, that's inconsistent with, with the true gospel, he can go to hell, is what he basically is saying. He is going to hell, and he's taking a lot of people with him. So, so he, I mean, he picks a fight. You know, nice introduction to, to a letter, huh? Like, I, I'm telling you straight up, you preach any other gospel that's inconsistent with what's already been proclaimed through our Savior Jesus, you're going to hell. That person's taking people to hell. And then he goes on and it says that. He says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please men, 
I would not be a servant of Christ. No kidding. He's not trying to please man. You can't, you can't try to please man if you're going to stand up for Christ and speak the truth. So, so how, how can we live for an audience of one? Here's where it starts. If you're going to live for an audience of one, you've got to understand John 1.12. But to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You've got to become a child of God. You've got to recognize that your sin separates you. Acknowledge that your sin separates you from God. This is the place where we all begin. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Believe that Christ died in your place for your sins and confess Him as Lord and Savior. Give your life to Him. And then you can become a child of God. Now, now, let me just explain to you how profound that is when you do that. When you put your faith in Christ, you become a child of God, and you can begin to live for an audience of one. What does that mean? Well, basically, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he explains that. He goes, How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He's speaking in this superlative kind of language. He says, this is out of this world. There's nothing better in the universe than to be a child of God. This is what he's saying, to be a child of God. So what does that mean? What does it mean to live for an audience of one? This is what it means. As God's child, there is never a moment when you're not an object of his undivided attention, unconditional affection, and unlimited action. That is a rock-solid foundation. He loves you like nobody else. He's going to take care of you. So you begin to live for an audience of one. That's what that looks like. Here, here's the next one now. So power of true faith lives for an audience of one, believes God can deliver us. And he's talking about that God is great. So think about the sequence of what he's saying. King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer you. Our God can save us. He will save us. And even if he doesn't save us, we're not bowing down. So he starts off with this first part. He can deliver us. He's speaking of the greatness of God. God is indescribably great. Verse 17. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Now, here's a great verse that talks about the greatness of God. Jeremiah 32, 17. Listen to what he says here. Ah, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. See, these guys were convinced of that. Our God can save us. He's big enough. He's a whole lot bigger than you. He's bigger than any circumstance we'll ever face. You see, God is greater than cancer or a lost job or a broken marriage. He is greater than any guilt or shame or sin or Satan or suffering. He is greater than anything you will ever, ever face in life. He is bigger. That's, that's the declaration they're making. They're just saying, He can save us. He can save us. That's how powerful our God is. And then he, the next one is, so, so the power of true faith lives for an audience. One believes God can deliver us, God's greatness. And then, he, the, the, then this next one really talks about God's goodness. God is unimaginably good, believes God will deliver us. God will deliver us. Second part of verse 17, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. 
In other words, one way or the other, our God has the final say-so in this. And He always, always has our best interest at heart. He will either save us from the fiery, fiery furnace or save us from the fire or save us through the fire. Let me say that again. He will either save us from the fire or save us through the fire. Because that's how good he is. Okay. Um, a verse that we taught on during our God's Amazing Promises series, Isaiah 49, 15 through 16, is a cross-reference here. So I wanted you to get a sense of the goodness of God here. I think this verse describes that God is good. He's not just great, but he's also good. You need to have both of those. You need to maintain those. Our tendency as Christians, and I've also seen this as churches, we tend to gravitate either towards his greatness to the exclusion of his goodness, or his goodness to the exclusion of his greatness. So God is great, God is good. God is powerful, God is personal. God is transcendent, God is eminent. So you've got to maintain, and that's what you see going on here. And so Isaiah 49, 15 through 16, can a mother forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Of course not. I mean, it's just a beautiful picture. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. So you got his greatness, he can, his goodness, he will. So God is bigger than any opposition and he is better than all the alternatives is what they're saying. He is bigger than any problem. He is better than any pleasure in this world. He can, he will. Here's the last one. But live or die, he is our great and good God we adore and live for. Now, now I think that a lot of Christians, for the most part, get these first two, but they miss this last one. If you miss this last one, you're not going to get through the difficulties. You, you, you might even defect. I've seen people defect because they don't understand this last one. But live or die, he is our great and good God we adore and live for. Look at verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, what, what they are saying here is I believe this is an example of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Anybody know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Have you guys memorized Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Anybody? Trust in the Lord with all of your... You do. Yeah, you know it. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean upon your own understanding. You guys know it. This is an example of that. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean upon your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him. The word acknowledge literally means cultivate intimacy with Him. Get to know Him. Get to know Him. He's perfect in love. He's infinite in wisdom. He's unlimited in power. If you know that about him, you can get through anything. You're not going to rely on your own understanding. You're going to trust in him with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That's powerful. That's what these guys are doing right here. Now, what you see here in their response is both confidence and humility. So 
their confidence is in God and not in their limited understanding of what they think he should do or will do. There's the humility part. We're not so arrogant to believe that we know what is in our best interest. That's what they're saying. So we don't have to respond to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have to answer to you. And our God, our God can, he will, and even if he doesn't, we're okay with that because we know him and we know his perfect love, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power is working on our behalf. That's, that's a fact. That's what, what's going on here. We're not so arrogant to believe that we know what is in our best interests. Now, as a pastor, I've heard a lot of people say this. I trusted God for this. You can fill in the blank. I trusted God for this, and he let me down, and therefore I'm done with God. There's a lot of people running around like that. Did you know that? Because they don't understand this faith, this true, solid faith. He can, he will, but he didn't. I'm out. No, no, no. You missed the last part of what real faith is. You see, what they're saying is that God is a means to an end, and the end is more important than knowing and living for God. Getting from God is more important than being with him, and it breaks my heart because they miss the most important part of the Christian life. It's not getting from God, it's having God in your life, it's being with Him. There's nothing better than knowing the true and living God, no matter what goes down in your life. He's bigger than any problem, He's better than any pleasure in this world. See, that's what these guys are saying. You can, you can hey, put us in the furnace, it doesn't matter. We know the true and living God. We know Him. We don't defy you because we think we're going to live. We defy you because live or die, He is our great and good God who we adore and live for. We don't serve Him, obey Him, follow Him because He makes life better. We serve Him, we obey Him, we follow Him because He's better than life. He's better than life. He's better than life. He's bigger than any problem. He's better than anything in life. See, this is this major league, I mean, this is varsity. I don't even know what words to put to this. This is like high end. This is, this is true faith. This is what we need. This is what I need. That's why the Lord spoke to me so clearly this last week. He was like, oh my goodness, Lord, thank you. I mean, he's been speaking to me throughout this series. But this was one that was like, this is like made for me. So you guys are just hanging out with me as he's continuing to talk to me this morning. Okay, you guys okay with that? You guys cool with that? Okay. So, I mean, he's still speaking to me here. And, and I needed some, and I, I, sometimes I need it more than you guys need it. And so I'm, I'm thankful that I have a front row seat as he's talking to us, okay? And, and so God is that good. He loves us. We just want our lives, this is what these guys are saying, we just want our lives to glorify God 
Either way, whatever goes down, we want our lives to glorify Him because that's why we exist and nothing will satisfy us more. Our God is not a means to an end. He is the end. He is not part of our lives. He's our life. He's not an accessory that we added to our life to say somehow it might make life go better. He's not an accessory to our life. He's the very center of our lives. Our deepest and most enduring happiness is not from God, it's in God. This is the power of true faith. Right there. So think about it. In fact, I would encourage you to memorize it. Think about it. I don't have to respond to you, O King Nebuchadnezzar. I live for an audience of one. He can, he will, and even if he doesn't, we are madly in love with this God and we trust his loving, wise control of our lives. We're all in. You can't defeat someone like that. I mean, these guys are fireproof and fearless in life's fiery furnaces. That's, that's what I want to be. That's what I want. That's courage. That's where that courage is going to come from. Now, so... If you're going to be courageous to shine in this dark world, we need to know the pressure of tolerance. We need to know the power of true faith. Okay, now we go, go to the, the promises of suffering. Promises of suffering. Look at verses 19 through 21. King Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. And then he orders some of the mighty men of his army to bind them and cast them into the fiery furnace. Verse 22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire, check this out. This is pretty amazing. This is a, there's a major lesson in this, by the way. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Took them down. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. The king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see... There it is. I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the sons of God. Here's your next fill in the blank. Suffering is promised. Suffering is promised. Our failure to experience suffering sets us up for greater degrees of despair, but also to be terribly unprepared. And Americans have a lot of idealistic distortion when it comes to suffering. Hey, I lived a good life. I expect a good life. That's kind of the mindset. The Bible says, no, no, actually suffering is, is, a, is a promise in the Bible. In fact, uh, listen to 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13. This is Peter. He's speaking to uh, us, speaking to those people. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, isn't that like what happens initially when we go through suffering? Why is this happening to me? This shouldn't happen. I've lived a good life. He goes, don't be surprised as if it's some strange thing happening to you. In fact, he goes on and says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. His glory being revealed 
in you, through you, even in the midst of that suffering. Now, my wife a number of years ago went to Uganda on a mission trip. And this is what they told her to kind of prepare her for the people that she was interacting with there. They were building homes and doing all kinds of things there. And they said to her, these people expect to die young. They expect to lose loved ones, go hungry, and face a lot of hardship in life. And yet what she discovered is that they were the happiest, contented, most grateful Christians she had ever been around. Why is that? They expect suffering. And yet they expect that God's grace is even greater than their suffering. You understand what I'm saying? See, see faith is not a, not a denial of the reality of suffering, but it's a declaration that he's bigger than any problem. He's better than any pleasure in this world. She saw it firsthand in their lives. Suffering is promised. How do you do that? Right here is the next point. God's divine power is promised. Supernatural. I, I don't understand it. I'm telling you, I've experienced it. His supernatural power in my life. Look at 22, verse 22. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those, whom, killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know what that tells you? And I've seen this. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it in the midst of suffering. I've seen Christians suffer better than non-Christians. I've seen non-Christians taken out by suffering. I've been on the deathbed of people that were non-Christians. It was horrible. They were taken down. I've been on the bedside of Christians, and they suffered well for the glory of God. They couldn't wait to be face-to-face with their maker. Unbelievable difference. The flames didn't even touch them. What were they experiencing? God's divine power. God's divine power in their life. Second Peter 1.3. Listen to me. This is a promise. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and goodness. Through the knowledge, yeah, through intimacy with him. The more you get to know him, oh my goodness, the more you're going to experience his divine power. I've experienced his divine power. There are times in my life, I mean, I feel like tapping out. I feel like giving up. I feel like I can't go on. Lord, I need your help. And he has given me his supernatural power to get through this hard times, difficult times, painful times. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and goodness. So suffering is promised. God's divine power is promised. Here's the next one. The promises of suffering, your being purified, strengthened, and made beautiful is promised. Look at verse 25. Nebuchadnezzar said, but I see four men unbound. There was only one thing that was burned off of these guys. Did you know that? Anybody know? What was burned off of these guys? The ropes, the bondages. I'm telling you, suffering will burn off the bondages of your life. Why do we need to go through suffering? Because it burns off all of those things that we need to get rid of anyway in our lives. They were unbound. They are not hurt. That's verse 25. Verse 27. The fire had not had any power over their bodies. The hair of their heads was not singed. 
Cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. They didn't have the smell of fire. When I was working as a firefighter, we'd come in to relieve the B-shifters. I was a C-shifter. We'd leave the, uh, relieve the B-shifters. We could always tell if they had a fire the night before because the truck and their turnouts all smelled like smoke. And, of course, we were always envious. You guys always get the good fires. <laughs> Sounds weird, doesn't it? You want firefighters to like to fight fires, okay? You just, that's just a fact. It's like, you guys always get the good fires. So there, no smell of fire had come upon them. All you got to do is walk into Corumbas and have a taco, and you walk out smelling like Corumbas. Okay? Right over here on Bell Road. So, I mean, so this is all emblematic... Uh, symbolic of how suffering can make us better, can make us better. First Peter 1, 6 through 7, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire. It's not saying that the gold perishes. What perishes in the gold? It's the dross. Yeah, it's, it's all the junk we need to get rid of, all the bondages. So more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So like gold in a furnace, our faith is in suffering. Our faith in suffering is purified, dross is burned off, and we are strengthened and made more beautiful. Suffering can make us better or not. It depends on our response. See, suffering can fill you with self-pity, anxiety, make you hardened, broken, and bitter. I've seen it. Part of our sinful nature is to kind of take us in that direction. We have an adversary that's after us too, to do that in our lives. So what does that mean, purified, strengthened, and beautiful? There's three things, I think, that that means. One of the things it means is that we get to know our strengths and weaknesses better. We're purified. A lot of the dross comes to the surface of our life. A lot of the ugliness, the insecurities, all the junk in our life. And he can come along and bring healing, health, and wholeness. Listen to me. He has your best interest at heart. When you go through the fire, he's wanting to perfect you. This isn't punitive, by the way. He's not punishing you. All that punishment was placed upon Christ. But he's purifying you. He wants your healing, health, and wholeness. So as he brings that stuff to the surface, man, bring it to him. He purifies us. Here's the second thing that it does is that we can develop a, prof a profound trust in God that makes us fireproof and fearless in life's fiery furnaces. It strengthens us. I'm telling you, listen to me. I've gone through things here in the last few years as a pastor. I would have never survived it in the early days of ministry because he has strengthened me through the years. That's part of that strength. Here's the last one, third thing that it does, is that we can become more compassionate and skillful in helping hurting people to see that God is more desirable and satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death could ever take away. He makes us more beautiful. And I'm telling you what, I, a lot of the ministry that I do, I do it out of my own past brokenness and how God has brought healing, health, and wholeness through that. I just... And I got a ton of resources in that compartment of my life. I mean, I just, and, I, and, and you can too. God will recycle your pain. He will use that so that you can have an impact in other people's lives. 
And so suffering is promised. God's divine power is promised. You're being purified, strengthened, and made beautiful is promised. How do we do that? God being with you is promised. That's it right there. God is with you. Look at verse 25. Nebuchadnezzar said, But I see four men, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And in fact, verse 28, he says, God sent his angel. Who is this fourth person? Anybody help me? Help me with this? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Pre-incarnate. Jesus Christ. You get these, they're called Christophanies in the Old Testament. So the Bible makes a distinction between an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord. And uh, this is truly the angel of the Lord. This is, this is a Christophany. This is Jesus Christ. Exodus 3, 2 through 6, Joshua 5, 15 talks about, you get a glimpse of pre-incarnate Christ showing up. Knowing him personally while in our fiery furnace is the key to becoming purified, strengthened, and more beautiful. How do we know he will always be with us? How do we know he will always be with us? Anybody here, show of hands, ever feel like God has abandoned you? Maybe he's nowhere to be found. Show of hands. You ever go through those times of abandonment feeling? It's okay to admit that. We're in church, okay? Yeah, we all go through those times. So how do we know that he'll never leave us or forsake us? See that cross right there on the wall? Always look at the cross. Look at the last point on your notes. Because Jesus went through your greatest fiery furnace for you, the cross, he'll certainly be in your smaller furnaces with you. In justice, God passed the required sentence of death on our sin, but in love, Jesus took that punishment himself for us on the cross. What infinite lengths to which he went to be with us and to never leave us or forsake us. Always go back to the cross. Always go back to the cross. Listen, listen. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to abandon you. He'll always be there because of the cross. Because of the cross. Next weekend, Daniel 4, be humble. We're looking at characteristics of how we can shine in this dark world. Uh, I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders or leaders. If you are new, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer for any particular reason, this would be a good morning to get prayer if you're going through a fiery furnace right now. We'd love to pray with you. If you've got any questions, uh, I'd love to try to answer those questions for you. Here's what I'd like to do and how I'd like to end the service here. I want us to proclaim God's promise to us in these verses. They're on your notes, Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. I want you to hear these words. If you're going through a fiery furnace, if, if not, you will. These words will comfort you. Listen to what he says. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, your Savior. Help us to recognize, depend, and speak with, and believe in you while we are in the fiery furnaces of life so that, so that it will purify us, strengthen us, and make us more beautiful so that the world is drawn to you through our lives, all for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.